And I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just spin vinyl. I'm going to make what goes on that vinyl. And I got up and I stormed out and I slammed the door. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm your host, Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in the book. You can get yourself a copy of the book now using the promo code PODCAST15 to get 15% off. You'll find the link in the main page of this podcast. Today's guest is Mary Lou Lord. She started out singing in the subways of Boston and London before embarking upon her own solo musical career. It was her love of music and bands that led her to become a master interpreter of other people's songs, including a gorgeous cover of Daniel Johnston's Speeding Motorcycle. That song was the first song of hers I had heard, and it may be sacrilegious to say, but she takes that song and makes it her own. Her own songs, like Some Jingle Jangle Morning and Camden Town Rain, established her as an artist in her own right. She's bringing us two stories today on how she grew and evolved as an artist. So yeah, I've had quite a few milestones as we do in our career, but I think also, one of the biggest milestones for me, one of the it was a breakthrough, uh, pivotal moment. When I was about thirteen, I got a little job at a local college radio station. Um, I would go there often and bring the DJs pizzas and put records away and just hang around the radio station. They because my school was connected to the college. Uh, I was in the eighth grade, and I would stop by there every day after school. And eventually, I got my uh, I got my own show because people would call in and they'd know that I was there at the radio station. And can you fill in for me? Yeah, can you fill in for me? Yeah. So I had probably more airtime than some of the other other real students at the college that had their shows as well. So about three years into it. Uh, they came up with this idea somehow that they wanted the station to be all hardcore because uh, they thought that it would single them out. And I thought, oh, I, don't, I don't really like that idea. That doesn't seem what diversity in college radio should be about. Um, so what we, we had to play about four hardcore songs an hour and then whatever was new that we got in the studio maybe even five hardcore songs an hour, like Circle Jerks and Dead Kennedys and all this stuff. So what was happening is I was playing exactly what I wanted. I was playing like Bebop Deluxe, back-to-back with Renaissance, back-to-back with West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band, and just all this kind of mixed up. I thought it was awesome, right? So I got monitored. I was writing down that I was playing the hardcore songs, but I certainly wasn't. So I got monitored, and at a big meeting about two months after all this, um, they said, we're going to have to let Mary Lou go. Uh, She's not been following the protocol of the playlist. So I was... I was outraged because a lot of these people, I had taught them how to run the board and 
how to keep the logs, and I had just spent a lot of time there, and and I absolutely loved it, and I and I knew in my heart it was wrong to have that kind of a playlist. It was crazy to me. So I remember standing up at the meeting and I said, you know, you guys might might as well be a bunch of monkeys pushing buttons if you're not going to have the creative ability to even put together your own playlist. And I said, I'm not going to I'm not going to just spin vinyl. I'm going to make what goes on that vinyl. And I got up and I stormed out and I slammed the door and then I got in the hallway and I started crying and I just felt like my world was, I just felt so crushed and let down. So I left the, the radio station, of course, and I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So I thought, well, maybe I'll be a record producer. I'll, I'll do something that goes hand in hand with making records or making music. Uh, I couldn't see past the glass uh, because I didn't play music yet, really. But it dawned on me that, hey, you know, I can still be a DJ in my own way. I can get my songs out on the air, in the air. If I learn to play these songs that I love, I can maybe stand in a subway and play them for people. And it doesn't have to be a radio, or you don't have to have a a, a ceiling, really. I can be outside. I don't need a venue. I don't need anything. All I need is for my arm to move like this and my hand to make chords like that and my mouth and my voice to sing the words of these songs that I love. So that's kind of what I did, and I kind of still do that to this day. I love songs that maybe no one's heard before, um, people like the Bevis Frond, of course, that I've talked about before, Nick Solomon, um, just a wealth of beautiful, beautiful songs that some of them had been sitting under his bed, literally on in tape forever. And I just said, hey, Nick, let's take the song out for a spin. And a lot of that Got No Shadow record was because of that, because I love these songs, and I thought, I want to play these. Um, and if I couldn't be a DJ, <laughs> there was there was more than one way to do it, to get these songs to people. And, I, yeah, it, it was just a different way to do it. So me getting fired from the radio station was probably the most pivotal and important moment uh, because I could have continued doing that forever and never really found... Not, and it's weird. It's like not like I ever found my own voice because, but it is my own voice because if you love a song and if you're singing a song, it's going to come out the way you are, right? And all I wanted to do was try to do these songs a little bit of justice. And if there was merit to the song to begin with, it that should be pretty easy. So early on, I was covering songs like Vincent Black Lightning. Um, it's a, not a very easy song to play, but the lyrics are so great that you don't have to play it well. Um, and then, of course, Big Star 13. Early on, I was playing that. So I was just playing all these songs that I loved, playing them in a subway or on a street corner or wherever there might be people. And it was a lot of fun, and I got to be D DJ again. And so that was a very important time. Mm -hmm. 
From busking in the subways to record contract, Mary Lou continues with a second story on how discovering and befriending other artists helped inspire her own musical career. I think me hearing Sean Colvin for the first time um, was one of the biggest. It was incredibly important because I I absolutely loved uh, this person, right? And it was only a cover of a Bob Dylan song called You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go. And I heard it on the radio and um, I tried to find who this person was. And back then, it, you know, there was no internet. So you had to do a lot of calling on the phone and a lot of digging and a lot of calling the radio station if you heard something. Um, so I called the radio station. I said, what, who is that person? And they said, that's Sean Colvin. And, but you know, she has no records out yet. And so I, I waited for a long time to, but, but I always listened to that tape because I used to record the radio all the time, you know, just stuff that I liked. Um, and I heard her on a, a radio station in Boston um, called WERS and it was a show called the coffee house and it was on in the morning and uh, a few years went by and I was playing in the subway and a, a guy who happened to work for WERS heard me I was playing a Sandy Denny song and he said oh wow you you know that's a great selection of a cover I think I was playing who knows where the time goes or something and and we got to chatting and he told me he worked for ERS and his name was uh, Robert Haig. And uh, he said, who else do you like besides Sandy Denny? And I said, well, I love Sandy and, of course, Bob Dylan. And um, then there's this person that I don't think they exist named Sean Colvin because I can find nothing on her. And he said, well, she very much does exist. And she's playing at Passim. A, a little folk club in Boston in two days. And he said, do you want to come with me? And I said, oh, yeah. And so we exchanged phone numbers and we met at Passim and a little tiny club. And here's this person on stage that I had been thinking about for two years, just haunted by this woman's voice and the beautiful cover of this Bob Dylan song. Like, oh, my God, wow. And uh, so... We went to the show, and after the, I just sat there, and I was riveted by this person. And after the show, I, I just couldn't speak. Like when that that happens to me sometimes, uh, if I see an incredible performance or whatever, I, I can't, I lose my ability to think straight. And so after the show, Robert introduced me to Sean because the radio station had sort of sponsored the show, um, and I just I couldn't speak <laughs> I was like does your arm hurt because I don't know why I said that I said does your arm hurt like I could I lost my mind and she said my arm is fine she said how are you and I said I'm good but my arm really hurts and I, I could have pissed myself you know just like oh and anyway I calmed down after that and we probably had dinner afterwards and um, so I got to know her very well, and she still didn't have um, a, a record contract yet, and she was in the process of getting a record deal. And I, we became friends, and over about a year's time, maybe 
a year and a half, she finally got a record deal. And it was wonderful to be part of that um, process. And she would call me often and I got to sort of understand what it was like to get a record deal and to have all these songs together. Um, and then she made her record and uh, I would go to all her shows and we became very, very good friends. And she would stay with me when she came to Boston and I'd stay with her in New York and we went to shows together. We did a lot of stuff. And then uh, a couple of years later, fast forward, um, she won uh, a Grammy um, for record of the year and song of the year. And it was just wonderful to, to be part of this person's uh, life and career at the very beginning stages of that career. So it was like a dream, but it sort of set to, said to me, like this, this can be done possibly, or you can possibly make a living playing music. Um, so just me, that was a big one. And then uh, hearing the Bevis Fraun for the first time, that was another big one. And then the, the next big one was hearing Daniel Johnston. I heard Daniel Johnston on the radio in probably 1988. And I thought it was a woman and it was speedy motorcycle. And I pull, I remember pulling the car over and running to a phone booth because again, no cell phones yet, no internet. And I, and I called the radio station and again, it was W E R S. And I said, who is that woman singing about the motorcycle? And they said, Oh, that wasn't a woman. That was Daniel Johnston. And I said, where can I get his music? And they said, go to in your ear. And so I said, okay. So I, I, right there and then, I drove my car to In Your Ear, and I said, do you have this guy named Daniel Johnston? <laughs> and they said, yeah. And I said, I want his record. And they're like, well, we don't have records, but we've got a few tapes. And I said, okay, tapes, cassettes. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of weird, but cool. And so I bought, uh, I think, Yip Jump and Hi, How Are You? And I said, what else? Uh, will I like? And they gave me uh, Sebado and Centri and a Centrido. And I was like, this is cool. I'm like, what do you call this music? Because <laughs> I honestly, I was coming from like a folk world, really folky world uh, before the Bevis Ron and before Dinosaur Journey, you know. So Daniel Johnston was really my bridge from, you know, jazz. I went to Berkeley College of Music and you know, like record deals in my the scale of what I could do, like the, the, never, that would be like a dream, crazy dream. Um, but I, I just wanted to be possibly a producer or something. I don't know what, I just wanted to be around music. So I went, went to Berkeley and this was like a dream thing. So when I heard Daniel Johnson, that was my bridge between uh, the jazz and folk world to sort of like a what do you call this world? Lo-fi, DIY, I don't know, but this is cool and just as important and just as amazing. Uh, so I bought the Daniel Johnson stuff. I bought the Sebado stuff. I said, what is this called? And they said, lo-fi, indie, we don't know. And it was so cool. So I took those, those cassettes and I stuck them in my car and I would listen and listen and listen. And I just loved it. And then, uh, and that was right, probably like 88, 89. And then I heard Dinosaur Jr. And then 
of course, Teenage Fan Club and all these incredible bands that were coming along. And then uh, the big one, I would say, was Nirvana. Um, I heard on that same radio station, I heard a song on the radio and it was Dive. And I said to myself, who is this? And I was living with a guy named Jim Neal um, at the time who knew everything. And he's the guy that introduced me to the Bevis Fraun about a year before, uh, their music rather, not the band or the guy, Nick. But um, it, so I said, who is this? And he said, I don't know. And Jim never didn't know. And so I remember calling the radio station. And I, I said, do you know the band that does this song? And they're like, well, how does it go? And I sang it. And they're like, well, I think it's a band called Nirvana. And I was like, wow, okay, cool. And so I, and then I met the guy that uh, was the DJ um, that played it, right? I was busking in the subway and I saw a guy whose hair looked really cool. And I actually followed him to the Middle East. And I said, what, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a DJ. And I was like, you're the guy that played that song by that Nirvana band. And he's like, yeah. So we became friends. Dave Gwizdowski is his name. And um, about, oh God, eight months before Nevermind came out, he said to me, he's like, hey, that band that you like, I've got a really, I've got an early release of the, their album that's going to come out. And I was like, dude, you got to hook me up. So he gave me a very early copy of Nevermind, probably in maybe April or May of 91. And I remember I just beat the shit out of that record. And I used to like, I was a gym rat and I used to run every day to it and ride my bike and listen and listen and listen. <laughs> and so uh, one night, my friend Jason Hatfield, who is Juliana Hatfield's little brother, Told he made a joke and he said, This is Jerry Love from Teenage Fan Club, and I want you to meet me at the rat because I'm going to see the Melvins. Um, and I thought, Well, this is weird, so I was like, Okay, whatever. The Melvins, I kind of know who they are, I think they're related to that Nirvana band, or whatever. So I rode my bike, uh, from Cambridge to Central to um. Moore Square in Boston, and I went to see the Melvins, and I was looking around um, for, like, and I was like, there's no teenage fan club here. Somebody played a joke, but I really liked the band. They were really heavy, really loud. I had a good time. Then I was leaving and um, leaving the rat, and as I was leaving, because the show was over, it was just me walking up the stairs. I was going to go get my bike and ride it home. These three guys were, um, at, at, you know, trying to get in. But the show was sort of over, and a bouncer was being like a total dick. He's like, "What? what's your names? And they're like, Nirvana. And the bouncer guy at the door was like, well, I don't see your name on the list. And I thought, holy shit, that's that band. Or I think that they're the band. I don't know who they are because I didn't know what they looked like, right? Because I only had like these floating cassettes and no pictures, nothing. So I said to the bouncer guy, I go, you should let them in. And he goes, who the fuck are you? And I go, dude, you should just let them in. The show's over, whatever. 
And then I went back downstairs and I said, hey, Dave, that band's here, that Nirvana band. He said, oh, well, that makes sense because they're playing tomorrow night. I'm like, dude, you didn't tell me. And so I was like, do you think that they'll get in? I tried. And he's like, well, I don't know. So about 10 minutes later, they got in, of course. Um, and then I began speaking to Kurt. Um, and he said, hey, thanks for helping us get in. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. The show's been over. And in the meantime, I'm like, Jesus, I really like this band. I've been working out every day to this band that I love. But I didn't know which guy he was. I didn't know if he was the drummer or the – he could have been the roadie for all I knew. Uh, I was just talking to this guy. And then somebody came up, my friend Anthony, and he was like, hey, Mary Lou, heard you playing in the subway. You sounded good. And uh, – dude standing next to me who was Kurt said oh you're playing the subway that's kind of cool you know like whatever and um just uh, just leave from there and, I, and he said what do you play and I said you wouldn't know it because I had no idea who he was or what he liked or whatever I just liked this Nirvana tape that I had and I said I um I like uh D Daniel Johnston and Teenage Fan Club and uh, a few, whatever I'd said. And he's like, those are my favorite bands in order. And I was like, you don't know who Daniel Johnston is. Because I honestly thought in my small world that no one knew who the fuck Daniel Johnston was. And I said, what's your favorite Daniel song? And and he'd name whatever he named. And I'm like, oh, you do like him. And uh, from there, it was like, okay, well. And so that was really a big turning point for me to meet this band and be um, the, there for a very early part, at, but a major uh, part of their career. You know, I was with Kurt uh, the first time he ever saw himself on on TV, MTV. Um, it was uh, it was weird because there were no record company people around. Um, it was the first time "Smells Like Teen Spirit" was aired on. TV on MTV. And I just remember it was Dave and Chris uh, at the Roger Smith Hotel. Everybody was like jumping up on the beds, calling their moms. But there were, it was just Chris and Dave and Kurt and me and my friend Deb. And uh, maybe Shelly was there, but there was no big fanfare, no record people around. And um, so just being with Kurt Cobain, the first time he saw himself, that to be part of that milestone, I guess, uh, was huge. Just these milestones of meeting these people and what I do, I feel, is a little bit not secondary, but that's like, that's just me. Uh, some of the songs that I've written and some of the songs that I've covered, but I think some of my biggest milestones are just the people in my life and having my daughter and just my family and just the people more so than my own career. Uh, Cause it's just what I do. I'm a, I'm a really good listener and um, I, I just, I'm a big, big fan of well-written, well-crafted songs and it makes me excited and happy. And I think that that's probably why I ended up, sort of in the right places at the right time is because I didn't need um, someone else to tell me, oh, these people are going to be big. Like I just go went with my heart um, and 
they happen to do well. And I just kind of happened to be there like a fly on the wall. And it was just an amazing ride, really. Thanks, Mary Lou, for sharing those stories. And that's it for today's episode. Please be sure to also check out my book, Live Through That, available everywhere now for more stories and photos. You can get 15% off using the promo code PODCAST15 if you order at the link on the podcast page. And if you like this show, please subscribe so you'll know when the next episode comes out. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.